Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. In this episode... I was on the island, it was a year ago now, and it's clearly just got a lot worse when everyone was saying that it was going to stop. Dr. Tom Nutting discusses his article, Headaches in Moria, a reflection on mental health care in the refugee camp population of Lesbos. Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. I am Sachin Shah, a general adult psychiatry trainee in London, and I am joined by Hamilton Moran, an FY1 doctor working in South London. And today we are discussing the article from the November issue of the journal entitled Headaches in Moria, a reflection on mental health care in the refugee camp population of Lesbos. Hamilton, what's this article about? Well, This article was written by UK psychiatry trainee Dr. Tom Nutting, who recently returned from a period of volunteering with a healthcare charity working with the refugee camp population of Lesbos in Greece. He reflected on the common presentations he saw and the current state of mental health care for these patients. He talks about how the camp environment could actually create conditions for worsening mental health, especially for traumatized people. He writes about what he was able to do with limited resources and about his ethical considerations of cross-cultural psychiatry. He then gets into the political context of the mental health experienced by the camp refugees and links it back to how we should consider the political context of the mental health of patients in the UK. And we'll be speaking to Dr. Nutting later on to discuss this article further. So Hamilton, before we speak to Dr. Nutting, should we lay some groundwork about this article? I think that's a fantastic idea, Sachin. Following a deal between the EU and Turkey in March 2016 to reduce the number of people arriving into the continent, refugees seeking asylum have been forbidden from leaving hotspot camps on the Greek islands to travel to the mainland. The Guardian had reported that the European Commission President, Jean-Claude Juncker, had hailed the deal as a success for thwarting smuggling gangs and reducing migratory flows. But at the beginning of this year, it had resulted in around 15,000 men, women and children being stranded in Lesbos, Chios, Kos, Samos and Leros, unable to travel to the mainland. The Moria refugee camp on the Greek island of Lesbos has been criticised by Oxfam over inhumane conditions. Oxfam produced a report titled Vulnerable and Abandoned at the beginning of this year regarding the situation at the camps. The report from January identified that the last government-appointed camp doctor had quit in November 2018, one factor in the halt in vulnerability assessments for people seeking asylum. This had resulted in a flawed system where vulnerable people were being housed in inappropriate, unsafe areas of the Moria camp. The report mentioned that Pregnant women and mothers with newborns were left sleeping in tents and unaccompanied children were wrongly registered as adults and placed in detention. Oxfam declared Moria Camp overcrowded at double its capacity and in 2018 it was noted to often be at triple capacity. Conditions are known to worsen in winter as the camp is not equipped for cold, heavy rain and snow. The report was also clear in placing direct responsibility on the Greek government for many of the procedural failures and, quote, abysmal conditions 
It also stated that the European Union member states were also responsible for the crisis due to their refusal to share responsibility for hosting people seeking asylum. People arriving on the Greek islands have often suffered various forms of trauma. Many have fled conflict or persecution. Many have experienced abuse or violence, including as part of their journey at the hands of human traffickers and state officials. In addition, the sea crossing from Turkey to Greece is in itself a dangerous one to have endured. Most of the refugees have come from countries experiencing war and conflict, such as Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and may have left their lives and families behind. Greek law specifically recognizes vulnerable people as unaccompanied children, people with a disability or serious illness, pregnant women or mothers who have recently given birth, single parents with underage children, the elderly, victims of torture, rape, or other serious forms of psychological, physical, or sexual violence or exploitation, people with PTSD, and victims of human trafficking. The Oxfam report stresses that the needs of such people are recognized under EU and Greek laws, requiring authorities to provide the asylum seekers with an adequate standard of living that protects their physical and mental health, and to provide necessary medical assistance to applicants with special reception needs, which includes the need for mental health care. However, Oxfam criticized the procedure for assessing asylum seekers for vulnerability on the Greek islands. Not only was the procedure often changing, leading to confusion and delays, but there was a severe shortage of staff to carry out the assessments. As the report stated, for many months, there was only one government doctor employed to assess the health conditions of as many as 11,000 people seeking asylum on Lesbos. And for more than a month in late 2018, there was no doctor at all. After the EU-Turkey deal, most asylum seekers were stranded on the islands, awaiting a very slow asylum assessment process. Vulnerable people are technically allowed to leave, but still remain stranded on the islands due to insufficient accommodation for asylum seekers on the mainland. One person living in the Moria camp was quoted as saying, I am almost blind in my left eye. I have problems with my kidney and my knee. That's why the doctor gave me a paper saying that the authorities must allow me to go to Athens for medical treatment. But that was five months ago, and my transfer has still not been arranged. The report goes on to criticising the conditions due to overcrowding, with 70 people sharing one toilet, 25 women sleeping to one tent, and inadequate washing facilities. Due to unsanitary conditions, medics have reported recurrent cases of infections especially harmful to children and babies and pregnant women. People living in the camp are quoted as saying how difficult it is to see a doctor, and even then they aren't taken seriously when they do see one. Things are worse in winter and wet conditions. There is no hot water in the camp to wash with. Only a few tents are equipped with heating, and tents are vulnerable to water flooding. The Moria camp has also been criticised as unsafe, with violence between groups lack of security, and in particular, concerns for women's safety. Some women were reported to be wearing diapers at night to avoid having to go out to the toilet after dark. The bad conditions on the camp affect the refugees. A social worker for the Greek Council of Refugees was quoted as saying, 
most people have mental illnesses because of what they have been through in their own country, but also because of the conditions in the camp. If they didn't have any problems before, they develop mental and physical issues in Moria. Oxfam has this to say about mental health. An International Rescue Committee report from September 2018 stated that 30% of the clients at its mental health and psychosocial support centre in Lesbos have attempted suicide, and 60% have considered attempting suicide. Médecins Sans Frontières reported in the same month an unprecedented health and mental health emergency in Moria, and said child refugees in particular are increasingly attempting suicide, self-harming, or having suicidal thoughts. To tell us more about the conditions in the Moria camp and how he experienced them, we are going to speak to Dr. Tom Nutting. So I'm Tom Nutting. I'm a CT1. I'm based in Bristol, but at the moment I'm working in Bath in sort of older adult psychiatry in liaison and community team. In terms of my interest in global mental health, it's, I don't know, it's something that's been an interest of mine for a fair few years. I did my elective on the Thai-Myanmar border, working in a clinic that was actually set up in the 80s, providing sort of emergency care for refugees crossing the border, but has just sort of carried on providing emergency care for decades. So I think that was my first sort of experience in that sort of setting, which I really enjoyed, even though it was quite a struggle. And I think after that, I always wanted to uh, do some more, but it was only had to do my sort of foundation years before I was in a place where I could actually do anything useful. And so your article reflects your experience uh, doing volunteering work within a refugee camp in Lesbos. Yeah. What alerted you to do that? Well, during my foundation years, obviously it was... 2015 was the year where the European refugee crisis really sort of hit the headlines and all those sort of awful photos and I think a lot of people were concerned about it and I just like a lot of people I felt really useless felt like it was on the edge of you know where I live as in Europe and I just felt like I couldn't do anything and really wanted to do something I saw a friend who was a little bit more senior than me, had volunteered for a charity on Lesbos. So I contacted her, asked her about it, and then once I'd sort of done my F2 year, then I had some freedom to go away for you know more than a couple of weeks. That's how it happened. So could you describe to me, geographically challenged as I am, where this refugee camp actually is and what population it serves? So it's on the Greek island of Lesbos, which is in the sort of northeast Aegean Sea, so it's really sort of where Greece is about to meet Turkey. So it's quite close to the Turkish landmass, hence why it's been described as a sort of epicentre of the European refugee crisis, because it's where a lot of people end up, just because it's quite a short distance to travel. I mean, it's still a very dangerous distance, but it's relatively short to get across from Turkey to Lesbos, and then you're technically in Europe. And the population, so um, mostly it's people who've travelled through Turkey. So I knew that it would be people from the Syrian crisis, people from Afghanistan, people from Iraq. But I was also quite surprised a lot of people from North African and Central African countries who had travelled a long way across sea and land and then up into Turkey and then crossed over into Lesbos. So quite a range of refugees. And 
you mentioned that the camp is meant to have a capacity of 3,000, but it was stretching beyond that. And one of the background reasons is the EU-Turkey deal of 2016. Would you like to just describe what was going on with that? Yeah, so the EU-Turkey deal really changed um, changed the sort of landscape of the refugee crisis in Europe because these sort of impromptu camps had grown up all across Europe, but especially in Greece, sort of reception facilities, they were called. And they were sort of processing places where people would carry on, ideally sort of flowing then to the mainland Greece and other European countries. Obviously, that didn't always happen that smoothly, but there was some movement. But then the EU-Turkey deal was this arrangement, as the name suggests, between the EU and Turkey. I think it was March 2016. They agreed that sort of every person arriving sort of illegally on EU soil would be returned to Turkey. And in return, the EU would take one Syrian refugee because it was the time of the sort of real Syrian conflict crisis going on. So that was the main sort of refugee population in Turkey. So the EU said they would take more Syrian people. But the problem, well, in my opinion, was that it was based on the untrue but kind of ignored premise that Turkey is a safe country for refugees and asylum seekers. And it was also a sort of political gesture. The EU kind of referenced revival of EU membership talks. Also, there was talk about relaxing visa requirements for Turkish nationals. So it was kind of, yeah, it was very much a political deal. But what it meant was that overnight, these reception facilities then became kind of detention centres where there was no movement anymore. And that's what's happened on Lesbos in the Moria camp. So it was actually an old military camp, a bit redundant. It was then turned into this reception facility with infrastructure for about 3,000 people max. But after the EU-Turkey deal, it's just people have been arriving and arriving. Not many people have been moving on or moving anywhere. And so that's why when I was there, it was actually topped 10,000. And actually, I was just reading the news yesterday. Sadly, there was a fire in the camp. I think at least one person died and then there were riots and that's why it hit the news. But according to various articles, it's now 13,000 people. And I doubt that the infrastructure has improved much more than when I was there. Well, you describe the infrastructure was extremely stretched in terms of facilities. Could you describe what the living experience there would be like in terms of having access to toilets, water, sanitation? It was so bad. I knew it was going to be bad, but I was pretty shocked because, you know, there are quite big names involved and it's on European soil and the UNHCR there. Like People are advocating and people are, you know, for years and years saying that it's not good enough, but it just didn't seem to change. So in terms of just shelter, I was there in the summer, so it wasn't, I mean, it was still bad, but it wasn't as pressing as it is in the winter. But uh, there just wasn't nearly enough shelter for so many people. The border of the camp had sort of spilled over and broken into neighbouring olive groves, which was it was just referred to as the olive grove sometimes. And that was where people just slept on tarpaulin if they could find it with no shelter, no security, men, women and children. Even though officially the vulnerable children weren't meant to be, well, they weren't meant to be in the camp full stop, but they definitely weren't meant to be there. Uh, but they were. So awful shelter, as I said in my article, um, it's probably about one toilet to 80 people when I was there. Very poor access to showers. I had a few friends who worked at a charity called Showers for Sisters, and they provide a sort of safe space for women and children 
to wash outside of the camp. Food, the actual quality of the food, I think, was pretty bad. There was sort of talk of corruption with who was sourcing the food. People would have to queue three times a day for about four hours to get food. And a lot of my patients got very anxious or very agitated. People were sort of fainting and then there was violence when people were queuing for food. So it was all very militarised, people described it to me, like soldiers with guns. And I think it brought back a lot of trauma for people, that setting. So yeah, generally the infrastructure was pretty bad. Why was it militarised? Well, as I said, it was a military camp and it's still run now by... Greek authorities. It's not run by the UN. It's sort of Greek military and police run. So that's why it's got this militarised feel. I mean, I think all, all, you know, a lot of refugee camps obviously have, because of their sort of legal nature, have fences and have that sort of feel. But I think people describe Moria as being very military and it's dealing with lots of barbed wire and these sort of rat races of queuing system and heavy military presence. And you described that this military feel to the place, along with the violence that occurs there and lack of security, could have had a re-traumatizing effect on those there? Yeah, that's the feeling I got. And I know I also spoke to some doctors at Medicine Sans Frontiere and other charities, and we all agreed that partly it's the sort of military feel of the camp, but also it's just the threat to one's security, the constant basic needs, pressures also are very traumatising in themselves. But as you said, that yeah, there was often a lot of mothers would say to me, how can I be not unhappy and not anxious when every night I'm worried about the safety of my children? And so there's this constant underlying feeling of threat. And that's, yes, yeah, so a threat of violence or aggression. But then larger than that is the sort of legal and sort of future threat about whether you're going to be granted asylum or will you be sent back to Turkey or wherever. And how did you feel working in this environment? You start off your article just talking about your level of stress. What does it do in terms of seeing that level of suffering and being as resource deprived as you are? Well, luckily, the NGO that I was working with, whilst structurally on a large scale, they were a bit disorganised at the time I was there. There was like internal politics and funding issues but on the ground the team that I was with were just wonderful especially the two women who were the sort of chief coordinators one of whom was an experienced nurse and they'd worked on Lesbos in Moria camp for many years and they were just so good and everything was kind of falling apart on the island it felt like but they all just carried on and there was really good sort of not official debriefing thing, but we'd all discuss things at the end of the day and the beginning of the day. And there wasn't any sort of hierarchy. We would just kind of, it felt like we were sharing any stress. Although I do think that they were burning out a little bit, but generally it was a feeling of shared responsibility. So I think that helped my personal stress. And then, as I said in the article, we were also lucky to be situated next to this fairly new community centre, which was a charity called One Happy Family. <laughs> And it really was such a nice place. People described it as the heaven on Lesbos to Moria's hell. And I think that was also quite a protective thing, being able to connect with the people there or even join in with some of the community activities. And there's actually quite a lot of evidence that those things help quite a lot with resilience building for the refugee population. But also I think it applied to us too. 
You mentioned that there's evidence to suggest that overall well-being is improved in refugees by building resilience capital. Would you like to just describe to me what resilience capital is and how it applies? Sometimes I'm a bit sceptical about resilience, like when it's used in some of our institutions that we work in, because, you know, like well-being days to build resilience. And I always want to say, well, that's good, but you also need to think, how is your institution constructed so that we need more resilience or maybe we I don't really know but um so I'm always a bit skeptical about that word resilience but I think in that study it was an idea about how well people might not resist traumatic experiences but this is like a coping ability for people experiencing trauma like why is it that one one person experiencing the same trauma might respond differently and there's this idea that Things like community connections and doing sort of collaborative work, access to language, learning. I think there was quite a lot of stuff around advocacy. So having someone explain sort of legal processes um, and I think there was also exercise, education, all those things help people cope with trauma. I think that was the general idea. And you also mentioned that this community centre was almost just a relief for the residents to go to because it helped them escape this refugee status. Yeah, I think quite a few of the patients we had described the community centre as a place where they could feel human again, whereas they didn't really feel human in the camp just because of its nature. So many people kind of, you know, the terms being processed and your cues and everything, whereas they could just sort of hang out or you know play sports, go to the gym, go to the garden and have lunch in the cafe. And yeah, I think that was quite powerful. Now, you mentioned some of the symptoms that people tend to report within such camps, but you were talking about being cautious of cross-cultural diagnosis and that you were talking about PTSD with people who did not know the concept. What was yeah. What was that like to tell someone about PTSD if they're not acquainted with that and how did that translate or transfer? Yeah, you're right. I did set out to be quite cautious of transcultural diagnoses. I think that particularly learned that lesson when I did my elective in Thailand. It was just There was a, a sort of psychology service that was set up and people just didn't really engage with it because it just didn't translate the language. People would come to talk and it just didn't seem to work. And so I was kind of had that in mind when I went and I did notice that mainly people were presenting with what I interpreted as bodily manifestations of stress and I kind of just sort of left that as it was but then a lot of people were also I couldn't help but see and maybe that's just because that's what I know but I couldn't help but see PTSD in terms of the common presentations common symptoms of PTSD and I guess because we had such little to offer people I think I perhaps kind of was quite happy to cling to PTSD as a diagnosis because it was a way for me to explore with patients what they were experiencing in terms of their symptoms and how that might be, might not necessarily be, but might be connected to the traumatic experiences that many of them had gone through. And actually, I was really pleasantly surprised often that people would find this really useful, it seemed to me. And people did tell me afterwards that they found it a useful way to conceptualise what was happening their bodies and their minds and a lot of people said I've never heard of that before but that makes sense considering this and this and then they'd ask me you know what's the treatment for this and we discussed its natural course of PTSD and the various things that we can and can't offer so I, I think I just found it a useful springboard for more exploration about the people's symptoms because otherwise it just stayed at 
you know, I'm having this symptom, what can you do to investigate it? And my answer was always like, well, if we were in the UK, maybe we could do this. Maybe we wouldn't, but maybe we could. But here we can't do anything. Although that was also tricky because often I could never say to people, there's definitely not this physical cause. Um, but yeah, so that's how I found PTSD useful and I hope it was useful to people. Now, in terms of what you could offer, it does sound like you were quite limited, especially mm. in terms of the medical model of things, no yeah. no medicine. I was wondering, another article that's going to be published in the November issue talks about the dilemmas that people can face when working in global mental health with restricted resources. So for you, that might be, first of all, like the people within the refugee camp have so few resources anyway, and here I am providing mental health resources but also you talked about time as this thing that you were able to give and people really appreciated being listened to. But you had this dilemma, giving people time, but then not being able to serve as many people. Yeah, absolutely. It was an ethical dilemma for me. And as I said, it was shared with the whole team. Like When I was there, there was definitely a sense that things were escalating on the island. Some of the really big health and mental health NGOs were kind of folding under the pressure they were closing their referral doors. Some of the island sort of health services, like the pharmacy, and they were also sending back our prescriptions. So there's a general feeling of collapse. And we did have a meeting at the end of one of the weeks to decide whether we should stop this relatively recent model that we were doing of longer consultations with fewer people and actually um, go back to doing what the other health NGOs were doing, which was sort of rapid fire, five minutes. 10 minute max consultations which definitely have their place and are really important oh it was a very difficult decision but luckily it wasn't just my decision and I don't know whether it would have changed or not but a few weeks after I left the NGO that I was working for actually sort of had a bit of a political collapse and sort of renamed and rebranded and had a slightly different approach and the two coordinators left so it, it did kind of fall down a bit um, so I'm not too sure how they do it now but it was tricky I think what I definitely want to cover is your excellent ending to this article, which you get into basically medicalizing the things people have gone through, to put it very broadly, but also medicalizing political issues. I mean, ultimately, the question I want to get to is we sometimes try to treat difficult lives. And you mentioned, you know, in the UK, austerity, for example, like mm. actually we know it would be great for the mental health of the population to improve poverty, to improve wealth disparity. So should it be a psychiatrist's role to be involved politically in that way? Or is it more for us to be apolitical and just treat whatever comes our way as a result of the conditions we're in? Mm. I'm thinking more and more that our role should also be one of advocacy. And that's why I was prompted to write the article in the first place. But I'm also thinking that more as I'm practicing now as a trainee psychiatrist just in the Bristol area, as I'm sure many people are, I'm just seeing more and more the damaging effects of austerity in this country. And homelessness has just become so much more evident in Bristol the last few years. And there are lots of support services in Bristol, but it's still like a huge health and, and mental health crisis that's happening. And I, don't know, I think through med school, we've been, I don't know, I'm personally wary about thinking that a doctor has a powerful voice because I, 
I've kind of learned, you know, why should my voice be any more powerful than anyone else's? But um, actually, I think people do often listen when doctors and other healthcare professionals um, speak up. And uh, yeah, I just think that if we're going to be responsible for or concerned with our patients' complete mental health, then we also need to point out what factors relate to this rather than just treating it when it arrives. Yeah, that's my personal belief, but it is difficult. <laughs> Is there anything that I didn't ask that you really wanted to get across? I would just say that I was on the island. It was a year ago now, and it's clearly just got a lot worse when everyone was saying that it was going to stop. Over the last couple of months, there's been another surge of refugees landing on Greek islands, on Lesbos, but across Greece. I think in September, more than 8,000 people arrived in Greece. So it's not something that's going away because there's conflict and then with climate change and there's going to be a problem that as psychiatrists we have to keep thinking about and we thank dr nothing for his time and that very enlightening interview about the conditions within the moria camp at lesbos hamilton what did you make of the interview and the article well it's just absolutely fantastic to hear from dr nothing about his experiences there and really is quite sobering and I guess parts of it were difficult to listen to. One watches the news and hears about situations in refugee camps but I think it's quite easy to not be completely aware of the sheer adversity that these individuals face on a really a daily basis and in a place that really should be a form of a refuge, a haven, but is in fact causing further traumatization. Really it's it's quite tragic. And not only a tragedy, but it's a travesty in that the blame can be squarely placed, and Dr. Nutting does place this within a political context, that this is something that should not be happening if the right authorities and the right nations took proper responsibility for refugees. And this is something that Oxham have highlighted in that the Greek authorities are behind some of the procedural failings at the camp and other EU member states are responsible for not picking up their share of refugees. And so what I do really appreciate about Dr. Nutting's article is that he does place these conditions within their appropriate political context and does not shy away from that. But then also to bring it back home to us, and how we should consider the political context for the conditions that our patients are in. I suppose, and I guess without meaning to get too political, but it is something people in general, but especially healthcare providers, should be more and more aware of. This increasingly visibly hostile environment to immigrants, refugees, with the current political climate. The way that nothing bring it back home to UK is not strictly about refugees, but more about, although the UK has its obligation to refugees as well, but like he was at the camp unable to do anything about what had happened to those refugees. Just as in the UK, he is unable to alter circumstances of patients who have suffered from austerity or any numbers of social ills. And I guess the question is, you know, should psychiatrists be political? And the answer is, you know, like... Are we against homelessness? Yes. So are we against the political frameworks of homelessness? Well, we should be. I mean, essentially, it's well established by this point that deprivation, immigrant status are associated with increased risk of mental illness. And so really, I guess the question is, how could one be a mental health professional without being 
some form of advocate for those who are least fortunate in society. Exactly. And I think that sometimes we shy away from the political context in which we see our patients. But I think most psychiatrists in honesty and most clinicians in honesty would say that they're at least against the broad concepts of homelessness. They're against the broad concepts of wealth inequality and poverty. And they will broadly say that they're against discrimination and marginalization of minority groups, be that ethnic minorities, LGBT people, disabled people, refugees, immigrants. I think we broadly hold these views that these are things that we need to address if we want to improve mental health within our society. But sometimes we shy away from then attaching political frameworks to these things, because clearly to address these things that needs to be some kind of political shift and that political shift should be named and clarified and it's an important point that Dr Tom Nutting makes about the fact that psychiatrists and clinicians ought to be political if they're going to advocate for their patients. It's tricky because anyone you stop in the street would say they're against poverty and homelessness but then when you speak to them people say yes I'm against homelessness but some people really they don't try. Yeah. Well, it's hard to tell, I guess. That may be a position amongst clinicians as well. You never really know. But I like to think that if the broad opinion is that we need to end poverty and we need to end homelessness, then we should do that in a way that respects the vulnerability of those affected by it rather than placing blame upon them. Obviously, the main focus of Dr. Nutting's article and the interview was on the conditions within the camp, which are horrific, and the limited facilities and resources that he had at his disposal to help people. But we have also seen that global mental health can have an impact on global mental health workers. And so we should consider that... Dr. Nutting and his colleagues were all witness to these things and had to not only see what these asylum seekers were going through, but then were faced with the burden of trying to help, sometimes in a futile manner, and sometimes having to ration out help in a way that may not have been able to help everyone. And there might be a lot of guilt attached to that as well. And so I think it was helpful to hear Dr. Nutting talk about the ways in which he was supported while he was working there. Because as we've heard before, the priority for a global mental health worker should be self-care. Because of course, as we all know at this point, there's the classic idea of having to ensure that you do take care of your needs so that you can continue to care for others. That classic putting on your own oxygen mask before you put on that of other individuals. And it is very much a real risk of encountering burnout or experiencing trauma from providing mental health care in this sort of setting, something which Professor Sharapanov mentioned in a previous podcast. Plus, like, he was stuck between, like, well, do I listen to this person for 30 minutes or do I listen to six people for five minutes each? I mean, yeah, the dilemma of deciding whether or not to spend more time with fewer people or instead see more individuals for shorter periods of time is almost a 
a universal problem, isn't it? If you look at resource allocation within the NHS in this country and in the healthcare systems of many other countries. But I think especially in an under-resourced setting, it becomes even more difficult to make that decision. Yeah, and I think about the fact that he hardly had any medication to give out. He hardly could refer to any psychotherapy, especially nothing soon and nothing substantial. And so he mentioned that his main tool was the consultation itself. And I think there definitely is value to the consultation. And I think we've all seen within practice that there is something useful to just being able to see the patient and being that person that the patient can come to. But that is awfully limited and an extreme way to find that out, the value of the consultation. And I don't think we'll be abandoning medicine or psychotherapy in resourced settings anytime soon. But it does really drive home how useful it is to connect to people on a human level, to listen to them, to hear them out, and just make them feel valued and respected and cared about, even for a short while. It was nice to hear about those who were fortunate enough to have the opportunity to go to this community centre where they could almost as it were, for a moment, forget that they were a refugee in a camp and instead take part in a more positive social setting, which in itself can be very healing, I suppose. It can be normalizing and it, it sounds like people likely gained a great deal from that. And I think like the conditions in this place are just inhumane, to be honest, like yeah. reading about it. Reading the Oxfam thing is just worse than what Tom wrote, to be honest. It's just like, yeah, tragic. I think like people apply band-aids to these things like let's be honest that there's nothing one psychiatrist could possibly do there. Is um, there so the the thing is though no I hear you I agree and I feel but I feel that applies to healthcare sometimes as well in general yeah like you help one person but then someone I can't remember where I read it but when someone passes when someone dies you it's not just the death of that person it's the end of a lineage the children they would have had, the people they would have met, the connections they would have forged. If you are able to prevent one suicide, you have saved a legion, an army even, of people. Mm. Yes. So if you can prevent one suicide, it could affect a whole community in a spread out way. What if you could prevent a thousand suicides per year? And oh, who Bessner, yeah. And who can do that? Not me, but a public health official probably could. But even more likely, a legislator probably could. And that just brings us back to the fundamental political underpinnings of mental health. In the article entitled Headaches in Moria, a reflection on mental health care in the refugee camp population of Lesbos is available in the November issue of the journal. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time for more discussion on the journal. I've been Sachin Shah. And I've been Hamilton Morin. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this BJSAC International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJSAC. To listen to more podcasts from the BJSAC journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.